listening to a podcast from The National. Russia and Saudi Arabia, fated to meet at the World Cup on the 14th of June in the opening game, but also very much at the crux of the oil markets. There's a lot of symbolism going on, enough that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is expected to attend that opening match in Russia. But what else could come off the back of the close relationship between the world's top producers of crude? You're listening to an episode of the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's Abu Dhabi newsroom. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. I'm very happy to say that with us today is Robin Mills, CEO of Kamar Energy and author of The Myth of the Oil Crisis. Robin, welcome back. Thank you. So it's been an interesting time to discuss energy markets and oil. Uh, last At the end of last month, we had uh, the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. We had the Saudi Arabian Energy Minister Khalid Al-Falah there, the, his Russian counterpart, uh, Alexander Novak. They were talking about oil markets. Um, perhaps we should listen to a little bit of what um, Khaled Al-Falah actually had to say to give us a bit of a flavor. We will do the right thing. We will make sure that markets are well supplied. We will make sure that consumers' anxiety are addressed. Uh, and, 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 and that at the end of the day, it's a balanced market with, with consumers that are comfortable that we're driving for. And whether it's a million more or less, uh, I think we'll have to wait until June uh, to make that announcement. So that was the Saudi energy minister, Khaled Al-Falah, uh, Robin. Um, what do you think of, of the kind of current state of the relationship between the world's two top producers, Russia and Saudi, in terms of their current detente on oil output? How, how, we, how are we looking in terms of their moving forward together? We're really at the point of moving into the, the next phase of the game. So, you know, if you want to talk the World Cup, I guess, you know, they're through the group stages and, and into the next round. Um, but they're wondering really where they where they go from here. The agreement, I think, in terms of what they wanted to achieve has been successful. Prices have increased uh, very significantly. The excess inventories have been, have been drained. They're now at or even below the uh, the, the target for inventories that they, they set uh, when, the, when this deal came together. So in that sense, it's been very successful. But now, of course, the deal is kind of facing the... Uh, uh, the challenges that it, it itself has thrown up, i.e. the prices have gone quite high, even though in the last few days they've, they've slipped back somewhat. But still, I think prices are probably well above where OPEC uh, and, and non, its non-OPEC uh, allies and Russia foremost amongst them had been hoping they would get to by now. Demand has been strong and uh, the world economy generally so far has been, do, been doing pretty well. Probably demand has been stronger than they expected. But maybe even more importantly, there's been a lot of supply taken off the market. And that's particularly from Venezuela, which is, of course, going through this slow motion economic collapse. Angolan production has, has, has been quite weak as well. And then the other big concern is Iran. Sanctions obviously coming back. Uh, US imposed sanctions on Iran and, and concerns that Iranian production will be cut too. And so for all these reasons, prices have risen significantly. And now OPEC ha- and, and, and Russia have to think, well, wh- what do we do next? Um, keeping these production cuts in force, uh, and OPEC is, is at the moment cutting much more than it intended because of the loss of production from Venezuela in particular. Keeping these cuts in force is getting to the point that it becomes uh, potentially dangerous. Prices can go too high, and that exposes OPEC to a lot of political criticism. And we've heard this criticism in, in recent weeks from Donald Trump, who was tweeting that OPEC was, was artificially driving up the price. Uh, we've heard criticism from India saying that prices are getting too high and that their, their economy is getting squeezed. And then there's just the concerns uh, about the economic impact of this, that, that if all prices do go too high and triggers a, a worldwide recession, or at least triggers a lot more effort on, on reducing oil demand, that uh, that'll just lead to prices slumping again and we'll be back where, where this whole thing started in 2014. 
So OPEC really has to enjoy the fruits of reasonably high prices, but not, not, not go for too much, not allow a, a damaging price spike to develop. And one of the big uncertainties, of course, here, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is, is Iran, because mm-hmm. if the sanctions on Iran are, are very effective and a lot of Iranian production comes off the market, then there will be a price spike. And then there will be pressure on the other OPEC members to step in, um, increase their production and fill that gap. I definitely want to drill down to some of the factors that are impacting oil markets, such as the potential uh, consequences of the reintroduction of Iran sanctions. But if we take a step back, and, and you mentioned 2014, um, and if, if I think about the last uh, four years of a sort of the political aspect of energy markets, and initially when we, we reached that peak in the summer of 2014 of you know 110 plus barrel uh, dollars a barrel, and then since then we had um, this slide in oil prices. We went under 30 dollars a barrel at one point. Um, and OPEC all that time was unwilling to act to shore up oil prices. It was a market share game. They wanted to get as much oil onto markets, particularly end user markets like China, uh, the Saudis, the UAE. Uh, they said, you know, we're not particularly worried about having to prop up the prices. Let's sell, let's sell, let's sell. But at, at some point, they realized that they really needed to act on, on prices. But they realized, I think, um, or at least in my opinion, that OPEC no longer had the sway on oil markets that it once had decades ago. So this plan to bring in non-OPEC producers, as you said, foremost Russia, into the conversation to kind of shore up oil prices, to, sh- to create some kind of stable force in oil markets to counteract what had become, I think, a new factor in oil markets in the last few years, which was US shale production, meant that in concert, OPEC and the Russian-led non-OPEC producers decided to step in and say, we'll reduce output something like 1.2 million barrels a day, they were going to cut back. And the result has been we're here now over the last 12 months where oil is close to $80 a barrel. Brent was at 76 um, this week, it had touched 80 plus, um, but has dialed back a little bit. And it seems to me and my questions coming after a very long summary, um, is that OPEC and Russia are now stuck with this role of stabilizing markets, even though two years ago, OPEC really didn't want to have that role. And they've kind of assumed it again. And it's quite interesting because you'd like to think that right now what they'd love to do is to step away and say, let's focus on market share again. But they can't, right? Because they've set the expectation that they will act in concert together. Yes. And look, and I think, it, as you say, it became essential for OPEC to have other big non-OPEC producers in in any deal because of the fear of losing market share. And Russia was really the only big producer that 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 was fitted that bill, that it was big enough to make a difference and that it was willing to cooperate. They had Oman in there as well, you know, that's that's probably helped a little bit. And there's a whole bunch of other countries which really are insignificant because they're either not that big producers or their production was declining anyway. So um or they've just simply ignored the deal, even though supposedly they're members of it. So you had Mexico and Kazakhstan and others, but you know they're they're notionally members, but really they're irrelevant. It's really all about Russia as the major producer. Now I think at that point it was really essential to have Russia in the deal because it was necessary to have some big producers who would cut production. Um, now we're kind of almost at the other end of the end of the scales because now it's becoming more essential to have some big producers who can increase production at short notice to meet any of these gaps and try and cool off the prices required. And again, the, 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 big, the only big producers in this deal who can really do that are Russia, Saudi Arabia, to an extent the UAE, uh, and perhaps a bit from Kuwait. Um, they're the only ones with significant spare capacity. Everybody else 
um, doesn't really have spare capacity that they can deploy easily, uh, if at all. So you know, I think on, on both sides of that, that scale, the way OPIC has always functioned, uh, when, it was, when it functions well anyway, to be able to cut production uh, to, uh, to shore up the price and be able to put oil back on the market when, when it's demanded, when prices are going too high. Uh, Russia has been the other key player that, that fits that bill. So they, they have a lot in common. They had a lot in common before. They, they seem to still, and, and that was the message at the St. Petersburg Forum, very much that Russia and Saudi still are on the same page. And we, we're expecting, as we head in towards the big OPEC ministerial meeting uh, towards the end of June, um, that they, they will, that will also be reiterated, that there will continue to be this progress. I mean, we had reported um, on the idea of a supergroup, you know, the idea that OPEC would long-term work in partnership with a massive producer like, like the Russians to ensure that there was always this reliable um, presence within energy markets that all participants could think of as sort of a, you know, a continuous or a continuum that they wouldn't be at the mercy of, you know, jump in shale production here or fall in demand there. But it also seems like the US shale producers continue to be a big factor in where oil prices go, certainly. I know it's not all about the price, um, but most recently the, the fall in the oil price has been because there's been record production in the US once again. And this is, again, a function of higher oil prices. So we're stuck in a kind of, not an echo chamber, but we're in a cycle where prices go up, so more production in the US, which increases supply, which reduces prices, which then results in perhaps OPEC and Russia acting together in raising prices. So it seems like we're in some kind of continuum, it seems. Yes, I think if you go back a couple of years, you know, the idea was that shale oil production was so flexible and so large that it potentially that it would kind of cap oil prices, that oil prices couldn't go above $60, let's say, because a lot of US shale would come on the market. And, uh, and as you say, then, then the OPEC and Russia would, would then either be faced with having to, to reduce their own production to accommodate it or, or accept that prices would go down. Now, I think it's turned out to be a bit more complicated than that. U.S. shale production has been extremely strong this year, and I think will continue to do so. But it's running into a number of bottlenecks. Um, the production in, in the Permian Basin in, in West Texas, which is the, the main area for production growth, is getting constrained because there aren't pipelines to take the oil to, to market. There aren't uh, processing plants and pipelines to deal with the gas that comes out. There are shortages of drivers, shortages of sand for a for fracturing the, the, the wells that are being drilled. So all kind of bottlenecks are coming up because growth is, is going at such a red-hot pace. Uh, and the price that the US producers are getting for their oil is well below world market price because of all these, these barriers and getting it to market. And, and so the shale oil has not, has not been able to cool off the market to the, the extent that maybe people expected. It's also, I think, increasingly apparent it's kind of the wrong kind of oil. Um, and what I mean by that is that US shale oil is very light. It's great for making gasoline, petrol. Um, it's not so good for making heavier fuels like diesel and, and jet fuel. Um, and the market is getting kind of short of those, those kind of fuels. Middle East crudes, medium gravity kind of crudes are, are very suited for, for that. Um, and of course, they're the ones that have been, and, and same with the Russian crude, they're the ones that have been cut back. Um, and so, you know, you're seeing a market which is maybe going to be oversupplied in certain kind of grades and undersupplied in others. So the, the, the picture is rather more complicated than we thought two or three years ago where it was just that Shell would, would automatically ride to the rescue. Uh, 
Is that a function of, of maybe, like I said, a simplistic view of oil markets where we only look at the price, when in fact it, it's a lot more fragmented than it appears to be? And then, and then more recently, we've had uh, in the last couple of years a cutback of investment in general, um, not just in in the US but elsewhere, as the as the price was depressed and as the majors were taking on new strategies. Um, but but also we've seen a, a re-emphasis on on sort of downstream and petrochemicals as well, which which is kind of a different kind of demand. So it feels like we're while on the price the, the broader price conversation we're in that continuum there's a whole load of other things that have been changing because I guess of the shock of that oil price collapse um, after the peaks of 2014. Right I mean you know when we talk about oil price we, we usually look at the Brent price which is a, a, a price determined in, in the UK um, and that's kind of an, inter, an internationally traded grade that, uh, that, that can set a, a worldwide price but if you look at US producers uh, onshore, they're getting $10 or, or even less less than, than that benchmark because of these constraints of getting to market. So I, I think that, that goes to your point that you know, the oil market is, is a lot more complicated than one simple headline price. And then we talk about the different kind of products for oil and some of those are well supplied and some of them are not. Uh, and that's, that's another, another complexity. Um, so yeah, I think that, that all uh, puts attention on uh, on the complexities that OPEC is trying to manage. It's not just simply a, a headli headline price and a headline market share. When you talk about the downstream, I think that's um, something that's come to prominence uh, in terms of oil company strategies more recently, particularly Middle Eastern national oil company strategies. And that's driven, I think, um, not so much by, by shale and by low oil prices and so on. I think that's really driven by a couple of factors. Um, one of those is the rise of Asia. Um, Middle East countries and their companies are, are all targeting Asia because that's where the demand growth is. Um, the US, US's oil imports are going down and down every year. European oil demand is, is uh, it's last year or two has been, has been some growth, but I mean, long-term European oil demand is in decline. The, the developing markets are, are really where the action is, and that's really Asia. So we're talking about China, India, and then a bunch of smaller but still very significant countries. And so with, the, with this sort of rise of Asia, as you put it, um, and the importance of those end user markets, particularly China. Uh, and and we look, you kind of almost creating a, a sort of you, a different kind of ecosystem that will, that might operate independently from sort of the, the more global uh, factors that influence benchmarks like like Brent crude. It seems it seems like th this is something that that is developing all, all on its own directly. Which might have been part of the strategy after the the sort of peak we hit peak oil prices of just pumping oil and and retaining market share because that was the time to capitalize on the demand in Asia. Well, there's a lot of attention on capturing market share within the, these key markets. A lot of competition, and that's interesting, I think, because you've got Saudi Arabia and the UAE and others in OPEC cooperating with Russia and the OPEC deal, as as we said. But they're also strong competitors, and Russia is a big supplier of oil through a through its pipeline that goes to China. Uh, Russia is, um, is is supplying and competing for markets very actively in in Asia. So it's it's not just a a collaborator, but it's also a commercial competitor. But I think when we think about petrochemicals, the the companies are really looking to the long term, um, and they're thinking. Well, firstly, they're constrained on growing their production. Um, what we call you know, the upstream, because 
they because of the OPEC deal that puts limits on on beyond increased production and and even if the OPEC deal is relaxed, I mean still they will not be able to flood the market. So where do they look for growth? And the obvious place is the downstream. So that's refining and petrochemicals and therefore plastics and everything else that comes out of uh, the petrochemical industry. And also longer term, they're thinking that there are some significant competitors to oil and, and the, the one everyone focuses on is electric vehicles. And there are some quite credible forecasts and predictions that really see electric vehicles taking off in the mid-2020s or, or by 2030 or so. And at some point, oil demand for fuel, uh, for petrol and diesel, um, will go into decline. So then where is the growth market? And and the big one there is seen to be petrochemicals because these expanding economies need a lot of plastics and, and, and rubber and, and all the other kind of petrochemical products. So big picture wise, if I think about some of the factors that might be making producers and end market users nervous, then the, the, the whole talk about potential trade wars and tariffs and this idea that, you know, if, if there is a tit for tat trade war between the United States and China, or where Europe gets dragged into it as well, then that could suppress demand for everything. And as a result, would suppress demand for, for oil and all its related products. Yes, absolutely. That's a big concern. You know, if, if world trade slows down, China is a huge exporter of all kind of goods to the world, of course. Uh, and if that slows down, China's own oil demand will, will slow down with it. Um, and, or if there's a generalized world recession triggered by these kind of trade wars, that is a big concern. And I think you also see the U.S. trying to use its oil and gas supplies um, more, uh, uh, more strategically nowadays. For example, I think the Chinese have looked at their trade deficit with the U.S. Um, or the, the, the U.S. the deficit that the U.S. runs with China. Now, you know, bilateral deficit trade deficits between two countries are, are, are a nonsense in trade economics, but it's something that the Trump administration is very hung up on. Mm. The Chinese have realized they're going to be buying more oil and gas anyway. The U.S. is exporting more, so China's going to buy more, more U.S. oil and gas by default. They can just simply claim that as a win and, and knock that off the trade deficit. So that's a, that's a relatively easy kind of political gain where the Chinese really give up nothing for, to, to get some, some headlines that will satisfy the U.S. administration. You also see the U.S. trying to push its gas in particular into Europe uh, in competition with Russian gas and, and even looking at sanctioning Russian gas projects into, into Europe and there are political reasons for that over Ukraine and Crimea and so on, but it also becomes a commercial opportunity for the U.S. So it seems to be a, po- a doing business posture, sort of, you know, tough talk, tough negotiation, and that's how I'm going to get my product to market first or my product to be the the best out there or the, the best sought after out there, basically. Yes, I think so. I mean, look, bear in mind, I think all these decisions on, on trade and who buys what are very much made on, on, on commercial lines, you know, with a few exceptions, of course, where there are sanctions or, or, or whatever. Um, the Chinese government may, may direct companies to buy a little bit more U.S. oil uh, for cosmetic reasons, but I mean, largely they're, they're driven by the best deals. Um, so the Chinese government knows it's not really, it's not actually giving anything up by, by uh, promising to buy U.S. oil that it would have bought anyway. Um, but I think in developing the petrochemical value chain, and that's where we come back to, to the downstream, um, there is an opportunity there to anchor a, spe- a specific demand in specific countries. And you see that the Middle East countries are looking at building petrochemical plants and refineries on a huge scale in India, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, 
and, and other major Asian countries. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And Extra Time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. This is the Business Extra podcast. I'm very happy to say that with me is Robin Mills, uh, a regular contributor to The National and also the CEO of Kamar Energy. So Robin and I have been talking about what's pushing and pulling energy markets at the moment. Um, we had mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode about the impact of sort of the return of US sanctions on Iran and the, the collapse of the nuclear deal. Um, there's the anticipation, I guess, that uh, a lot of Iranian crude that had been coming to market would, would now stop going to market. And this potentially could cause a, a spike in oil prices. To what extent, Robin, is it factored in already? Or, or, or are we still waiting for, the, for its impact to be felt? Well, I think the market has been trying to factor it in. And, and that's been one contributor to the rise in prices over the past month or so. But it's still very unclear how much impact it will have. Now, if we go back to the previous uh, stringent sanctions that were imposed under President Obama from 2012 to 15, um, he was aided in that by cooperation from Europe in particular. And about a million barrels per day of Iranian oil exports were taken off the market. Now, if you look at predictions for how much um, Iranian oil will, will be Iranian oil exports will be reduced by the current sanctions. Bear in mind, they're only imposed by the US this time. Um, you'll see predictions anywhere from 200,000 up to, up to a million barrels per day. So you have some people saying that the, the impact will be quite minor and some saying it will be as, as big an impact as last, uh, as, as last time. Now, the US is, is, of course, trying to impose these sanctions extraterritorially and it's, trying to thre it's threatening to sanction any company that is taking Iranian oil and, and, and uh, trying to sanction their, uh, their finances, put pressure on them if they have any US business, uh, unless they obtain waivers. And, and the process for obtaining waivers is, is pretty unclear, but it'll be something to do with companies that have reduced uh, imports from the US, uh, imports from Iran, sorry, significantly over this period and have been judged to have done enough to, to deserve a waiver. You know, very unclear how that's all going to work. And some companies will be deterred by this and will just think it's, it's easier and safer just not to take uh, Iranian crude at all. Or, it'll, or their banks will, will be refusing to handle the transactions. However, there's a lot of pushback. You know, the Europeans are looking very hard at mechanisms to, uh, to continue their ability to buy Iranian crude. Uh, because these sanctions, although the US presents them as sanctions on Iran, I mean, there are also sanctions on every other country in the world that wants to engage in what they consider to be legitimate trade. Um, the, the Europeans take the position that Iran is complying with the, the, uh, the nuclear deal and there's no reason why they should be expected to halt oil imports from, from, um, from Iran. I think the key player here really will be China. China will, um, China, and the previous sanctions didn't reduce its imports from Iran that much. It just, it again, kind of cosmetically complied and, and, uh, uh, and the US had kind of limited leverage over it. I think China will do that again, and China will look to probably pick up Iranian crude from other buyers who, who, who are forced away. Um, use companies that don't have exposure in the US and, uh, and essentially dare the US to, tr to try and take more action against it. Um, and this whole thing could get very messy. We talked about trade wars. You know, this, this is, a, is a trade war in, in a way um, and could become very serious and very complicated. A lot of, lot of legal battles and, uh, uh, and a lot of companies and countries seeking mechanisms to, to evade these US sanctions. 
in the previous phase of sanctions, the European help was very important because they put sanctions on shipping, on insurance, they put sanctions on the use of SWIFT, the, uh, the financial transfer system, and they're not going to do that again. Um, and that removes a major tool that the US had last time. Well, it seems the only certainty is uncertainty when it comes to the the Iran equation. Um, their, their oil had come back onto the markets. It didn't seem at the time to have too much of a of an impact in terms of depressing oil prices. Um, it's it's probably, you know, to a certain extent, as you said, factored in up to this point. Um, of course, the game could change depending on what the Europeans do, depending on what the US ultimately does. Um, but still, it's it it seems to have. Uh, made the majors pause. Um, there's been a few announcements from some of the big companies saying that they will take, you know, take a hold on some of the new projects they were going to take on in, in, in Iran. And it's part of a bigger picture where um, we still need investment in general, um, in production across the world, not just in the Middle East, uh, to ensure that we don't have a situation where, you know, demand is really outstripping supply. Um, could they potentially take this uh, investment elsewhere? Could they could they look elsewhere in the region if if they don't continue with their Iran investments? Could, for example, the you know Abu Dhabi, which is you know getting in bed with more and more players on offshore, for example, and downstream, could that investment find its way here and elsewhere in the region? Well, I think you know the, the first question this this hit on on the Iranian Iranian oil exports. Um, you, maybe the impact of that will not be so great, but I think there will certainly be a significant impact on on Iranian oil investment. It'll be difficult for Western companies, in particular, to to invest in major projects in, in Iran. Um, and you've seen Total, for example, saying that they would not be able to invest in the project that they signed for in Iran unless they get a waiver from the US, which I'd, I'd imagine is pretty unlikely to be forthcoming. And that'll essentially means hand to, handing that particular project over to their Chinese partners. And this is what we'll see. The Chinese will, will pick up all this kind of business in Iran, uh, as they did previously, and, uh, and, and, and Western companies will find it much more difficult to be involved. Perhaps the Russians will, will play a part as well. Um, now, as you say, you know, there is clearly more of a need for upstream investment in general. Um, so shale oil production has been growing very strongly, but we need to see other production coming onto the market uh, from, from conventional producers. Uh, and OPEC itself has talked this up a lot. I, I think that's slightly exaggerated because, firstly, because costs in the industry have fallen, so a billion dollars of spending now buys you far more than a billion dollars would have done five years ago, uh, and because uh, investment in new production actually is picking up. Companies are starting to give approval for new projects um, around the world, and including in, in, even in more expensive deep water areas, they're getting confident to go ahead. In terms of the Middle East, attracting that investment, investment that might have gone to Iran but now doesn't, um, yes, look, I think companies are very willing to invest in the Middle East. Um, it's still got the world's largest and lowest cost oil, oil reserves. What they need to see is simply good projects with attractive terms. Now, you know, those financial terms can be quite tight, but, but not so tight that they just make investment impossible. Recently, we've seen a lot of restructuring in Abu Dhabi, a lot of new partners and, and existing partners coming back into the uh, first of all, into the onshore fields and then, then into the offshore fields. So that kind of process of restructuring is, is pretty much complete. And there's a number of major projects that will go forward, um, now able to go forward because of that. Abu Dhabi is now offering exploration areas, which, which I think will be awarded uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, very, very interesting, the chance to explore in a, in a major oil-producing region, which, which is, that's not been open for, for many years. Uh, Iraq has also been trying to attract investment and, and it awarded some blocks 
uh, for exploration development recently to a number of, uh, let's say, mid mid-sized companies. Um, but you know, in general, there's not that many op- big opportunities in the Middle East. They come up quite rarely, um, and there's a lot of competition when they do come up. Um, some of the major projects I think we were expecting ha- have already been awarded in, in recent years. Um, and so there is a bit of a looking around by the industry and saying, well, what, what is the next thing in, in the Middle East um, beyond what I've just mentioned, Abu Dhabi and Iraq? What else is there? Um, there is the downstream, but I think those are kind of really separate buckets. Um, investment in downstream doesn't really help us in, in upstream oil and gas production, of course. Uh, and, and if companies are concerned about rising oil prices and, and taking advantage of that, of course, they need upstream projects. And, they, and there's a lot of competition from the Middle East, of course, from the shale producers, and we've seen Exxon and Chevron, who are major companies. Both of them, particularly Exxon, have a big presence in the Middle East, but they're both trying to grow very aggressively in, in shale in the US. So they have other options. And then I also mentioned deep water, and there's some interesting deep water projects uh, now going on around the world. If you look at Brazil and other parts of Latin America, for example. I get the sense, listening to you, Robin, um, you know, you're, you're, you've got a very broad view. You've also got a great understanding of the Middle East. It seems like we have... Um, come through obviously what was a very turbulent period with a disruption on oil prices plus you know the, the effect of technology on the industry um, a lot of changes in general um, that we've we, that we've had a period of stability now and it seems like even with Iran sanctions or even what's going on in Venezuela that in general both the biggest producers and the biggest oil companies have generally come out of this okay they've handled what was a, a, a really disruptive period. Uh, for the oil and gas industry, actually, you know, at, at least the B plus, if not an A in terms of, of, of where we've arrived at. And I can't help but feel optimistic that, you know, even with dealing with the challenges and risks that are always coming about, that we kind of have sort of set the tone for the next few years that the industry is actually going to be okay, when that wasn't necessarily always the case, right, um, following 2014. Yes, well, I think so. Look, if we go back to 2014, there was a lot of talk about lower for longer, you know, i.e. that prices would, would stay low forever, um, and that we might go back to something like we had from the late 80s up through the 90s when prices were low for a very, very long time, and that put a huge amount of stress on oil companies. Um, something like two-thirds of the U.S. oil company workforce disappeared during that period, uh, and it put a lot of stress on, on countries as well. The oil-producing countries accumulated huge amounts of debt, the Soviet Union collapsed partly as a, as a result of low oil prices. Um, There's a lot of a lot of uh, economic strain on Middle East countries, and we haven't had a repeat of that so far. I mean, the the, the period of low oil prices this time has been fairly short. Company, countries had enough reserves to be able to survive it. Um, companies, I think, adapted very quickly in cutting costs, um, halting projects. Now, of course, some of them had had shale to fall back on, so they they did have a source of, of a place they could still grow and, and invest. That, that remained robust. Um, but yes, they came through this without a, we haven't, we haven't had a major corporate bankruptcy. We haven't had a, uh, companies getting into financial trouble. And we haven't had a, a, an oil producing country getting into seri- serious trouble, except Venezuela, which uh, I think was the economy was a basket case anyway. Um, so that's true. It's been handled relatively well. Now, if the period of low oil prices had gone on much longer, if the OPEC deal hadn't come together or hadn't worked, you know, then I think you maybe would have seen some other countries coming under strain. Um, but no, perhaps we should be quite optimistic and maybe a little bit self-congratulatory in the industry that uh, that uh, so far we seem to have come through this okay. Um, if I'd sound a note of caution, I'd say you know the lower for longer talk might go away, but uh, <coughs> prices can you know can go down as well as up as we know. 
and uh, and we've had a temporary rebound that doesn't necessarily last forever. And there are still some serious long-term concerns, I think, over oil demand and, and I mentioned electric vehicles and the industry and, and oil-producing countries have to be very ready for that kind of challenge and, and think what they're going to do in a, in a market that probably has quite a few more years of growth, but not, uh, not infinite growth ahead of it. So when the uh, World Cup opens uh, later this month and uh, as expected, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia attends the game with, we expect Putin will be there as well, then they can be quietly pleased with the work that they've done over the last sort of 18 months to stabilize oil markets and at least give the overall industry a chance uh, to move forward and, and, and see some opportunities. Um, like you said, with, without being necessarily hubristic about it and being and, and being and, and, and remembering that, you know, at any time in this game, um, things can always turn around on you. Now, as I mentioned, Robin uh, is a regular contributor to The National, has a, a weekly column with us. Um, I, I thought I just, while I have you here, to kind of touch upon this topic that you, you've written about this week, which is about the shipping industry. And and so this, this ruling that's coming into effect in two years' time, where ships have to run on cleaner fuel. And even though this might not seem particularly seismic, it's actually quite an important innovation for, for not just shipping, but the energy industry in, in general, right? Yes. I mean, this is such a kind of arcane ruling that, you know, nobody, I think, outside the shipping industry and, and the, the marine fuel industry would, 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 think would pay attention to. And, and yet it is actually going to be much more important, I think, for all kinds of consumers and users of energy who, who, who never even think about this issue. I mean, basically, ships run on bunker fuel, which is kind of heavy fuel oil. It's the waste product out of refineries dirty, thick stuff with a lot of sulfur in it. Uh, and ships have always been a great kind of dumping ground for this, for this stuff. Now the International Marine uh, Maritime Organization has, has ruled that ships now have to use much lower sulfur fuel because this sulfur creates pollution uh, along coastlines. That's very bad for, for human health, um, acid rain and, and so on. So they're no longer uh, essentially going to be able to use this fuel unless they fit devices to clean up their exhausts. Otherwise, they're going to have to burn cleaner fuels. And this is a giant shake-up. I mean, I think if you look back to the early 1900s when we, we, we ch- changed over from coal to oil for ships, um, this is, is, is the, let's say, the next big change. So it's, it's kind of the biggest change in, in marine fuel for, for, a, for a century or so. And it's really going to shake things up. Um, refiners are going to have to produce clean, cleaner fuels that ships can use. The shipping, uh, the bunkering companies that supply fuel are going to have to get this stuff. They're going to have to test it, make sure it's it actually reliable. They can blend it and the engine's not going to get gummed up by it. And then make sure it's available at all the key ports. If you think of uh, the key places where ships bunker in, in, uh, in Houston, in Rotterdam, in Fujairah in the UAE, in Singapore, Shanghai. So all these kind of major ports are going to have to have, 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 to have the clean fuels available. Um, and ship owners have got a difficult uh, choice here. You know, the shipping industry has been pretty depressed for a few years. Ship owners don't really want to spend money. Um, and so, so far, they haven't really invested in, in adapting to this issue. They haven't fit, fitted the so-called scrubbers, which would clean up their exhausts. Uh, they haven't turned to burning LNG, liquefied natural gas, which is a, is a, a very clean fuel. Um, there's hardly any of vessel, either, vessels of either of those types around. So they're going to buy, try and buy cleaner fuels. But of course, on the 1st of January 2020, and even for a few months before that, everybody is going to be scrambling to, to, to buy these clean fuels, which are, are likely to be in short supply. The price of them is, is going to shoot up, and so refiners are going to have to work harder to try and make more clean fuels. They're going to have to buy more crude, and that essentially is going to drive up the price of, uh, of, of crudes that are good for making 
these, uh, these clean fuels. And it will drive up the cost of, of, of the other fuels that are similar to what the ships will now be burning, which is really aviation kerosene, uh, sort of what planes are running on, and diesel, which means higher prices for road, road haulage of trucks and so on, um, trains running on diesel, construction machinery, all, all these other kind of industries. So I think it's going to be quite a, quite a shock, and I think for many outside the shipping industry, um, an unexpected one. And, you know, the industry will cope and the industry will supply these fuels and ships will adapt after a while. But I think we could easily see a, uh, a year or two of, of significant disruption and uncertainty. Uh, and when shipping rates go up, and that, of course, drives up the cost of trade and, and has knock-on uh, implications for, the, for goods being delivered around the world. So this really, though it kind of is something that goes into, into the trade, trade press and gets talked about there, doesn't really hit the headlines in, in, uh, in general newspapers. But you have started to see broader media talking about it because the expectation or the realisation is dawning that actually this is kind of a big deal. Robin Mills, thanks so much for joining us this week. We hope to have you back again soon. Always, always good to talk to you. Thank you. So this has been an episode of the Business Extra podcast. We've been talking about energy and oil markets and future trends. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do download all our podcasts at Apple Podcasts. Visit us as always at thenational.ae and we hope you join us again next time.